But with that hair, we always knew a rocker voice was in there somewhere. That was, that was powerful. So let's uh, pause for a second. We're going to pray together. God, we invite you to this conversation because we do live in a world that is growing in loneliness. It is growing in isolation, ironically, when we know more and more and more people all around the world. And we can be connected to each and every one of them and yet find ourselves feeling on an island. And so I pray today that that feeling would begin to dissipate as we find ourselves sitting with fellow sisters and brothers who are interested in seeking the truth and seeking relationship with God and seeking relationship with one another. And may that change the ballgame and we would be the startling oasis of relational sanity in our world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we look into the subject this morning, let's dismiss children, okay? So if you've got kids now, grades one through five, they are dismissed to their learning centers. They've got lessons on this topic right now. I'm glad you're here taking in the second week in this series, Knocking Off. And um, last week, if you were here, we discussed how, you know, we're living in this season where our online relationships are kind of defined by division and discord. And uh, we, we talked a little bit about the anonymity piece, but there's another part to that, and we'll talk about that this week. That there's something more than just anonymity that's driving the discord, the, the broken relationships, the division, the increasing polarization that defines our online world these days. And I would describe it like this. It is a mood defined by one word, and the word is tolerance. And that's going to be our subject today. So part of being a good digital citizen, if you're a follower of Jesus, that ought to be something that you're interested in. And part of being a good digital online citizen is to understand this mood. Because this mood sort of defines us in this cultural moment. But it's a bit complicated. And you can see that it's complicated right out of the gate because you say to yourself, why would the mood of tolerance uh, contribute to the larger issue of acrimony, discord, division, and increasing polarization? You'd think that this would be the antidote to all those things, right? Well, it would be if by tolerance we meant tolerance. But words change. Words have long histories, and words can evolve in their common accepted meaning, and that happens a lot. Like a lot of words that have a long history, tolerance has sort of got an evolving definition. I'll just give you another example. A word like socialism means something totally different to you if you studied the original thinkers who coined and used the term, like the French political philosopher um, Saint-Simon, and Karl Marx, if that's kind of how you understand socialism as the, you know, the public ownership of the means of production, that's going to mean something totally different to you than if you just listened to Bernie Sanders. So tolerance is like that. It's got a word that, it's a word that has kind of evolved a, a meaning over time. And so the old meaning, there's an old meaning and a new meaning. And understanding the evolution of the word is going to help you better represent Jesus if you're a follower of his both online and offline, okay? So that's the subject today. So first, let's begin to talk about, what, well, what do we mean? What was the old understanding, Rick? So let's talk about that. The old idea of tolerance was where you had a broad system that was accepted by a majority. And actually, you can look, this, you look back culturally, and it really didn't matter what the system itself was. So the system could be Christianity, could be paganism, could be Nazism, could be Buddhism, whatever. But the question in the old way we framed tolerance was this. How much deviation from the system could be endured, that's by the way another great word for 
tolerance, how much deviation from the majority system could be endured before coercive force was applied. Okay, that was the concern under the old tolerance. Coercive force then is what intolerance meant. When you crossed the line into intolerance, you knew it because you were now applying coercive force to bring the deviant elements back into the fold. Um, so in other words, if you can endure a lot of differences in your particular environment, that's high tolerance. But if you have low, um, uh, if you can endure low differences before you start coercing people, of course, that's low tolerance. And I think we could all agree then that high tolerance was to be valued, generally speaking, over low tolerance. And let me give you a couple of examples where tolerance expanded in human history and there were seminal moments that changed the ballgame. So let's go uh, way back to the Edict of Milan. This is from the 4th century. Now in the 4th century, the Roman Empire is ruling the roost. And you kind of have this di- uh, an interesting picture in your head, right, and when it comes to history. Because you say, okay, I know that Romans hated Christians. Like you have the pictures of the Christians being you know, put into Roman colosseums and eaten by Roman lions. And, yeah, the lions had citizenship. And um, uh, being burned at the stake and that sort of thing. And then at the same time, you have the picture of the, mo- the, the, the Christian group with the greatest influence in church history has been the Roman Catholic Church. And so you say, so, well, wait a minute. How did an empire named Rome go from hating Christians to embracing Christianity? Well, it happened like this. Besides the one-by-one conversion of Romans into the church, there was a monumental political achievement by a guy named Constantine. And so Emperor Constantine did this. In February of the year 313, he permanently established religious, here's a word, toleration in the Roman Empire. And friends, if you study history, the history of religion, there's something the world had never seen before. Not like this. They had seen some amount of toleration, but nothing like this. Constantine granted all persons the freedom to worship whatever deity they pleased. And specifically for Christians, they were now granted rights as citizens in the Roman Empire and their confiscated property was returned to them. That's the Edict of Milan. It just changed the ballgame and raised tolerance. Okay, here's another example. The Edict of Nantes. Now imagine, okay, so just to give you, set the table for this. This is now in the 16th century. But imagine you lived in their world. And it would be something like this. Everybody knows that there's one Catholic church in a large diocese in our particular area. It's the one on 88th Street. You've probably seen it, driven by it many times. Imagine the priest in the Catholic church in our town in Marysville rouse the flock and um, one Sunday morning they all marched on over, two blocks over, to Pastor Chris Rich's church, a Damascus Road church, a strongly Calvinistic church, and they burned the place down with everybody inside and they killed everybody inside. That happened a lot just imagine you lived in that world in france in the 16th century that happened a lot it's called the wars of religion and catholics and the newly minted calvinists fought wars over the worship of jesus if you can believe it so there was a protestant king that came along a guy named henry and he converted he was a calvinist and he converted to roman catholicism And since he had experience as both a Protestant and a Catholic, he suggested the radical idea that maybe it was a good idea that Christians not kill each other over the correct way to worship the Prince of Peace. You know, radical idea, right? Radical. And so the result was the Edict of Nantes. And it was established in 1598 that guaranteed religious, here's the word, toleration. 
religious toleration. When they stopped using coercive force to punish or change Protestants, the church stopped being intolerant, the opposite of tolerance, right? And so that's the old way of understanding tolerance. One of our elders, James Berner, he wrote this great blog this week. You can find it on our, our Facebook site. It's about this. And he had a great definition of tolerance. I'm going to throw it out here. Tolerance, enduring with forbearance without interference. That's the old school way of understanding tolerance. Enduring with forbearance without interference. So you can see in the old understanding of the term, it was possible to not accept what a person was saying In fact, to believe that they're utterly deluded and deceived or wrong, and at the same time accept that person. And so that idea of accepting without 100% approval, acceptance without approval, uh, was what tolerance brought to the world. And you can see what a beautiful development in human history that it was. It was just utterly unbelievable when tolerance expanded and intolerance shrank. In fact, it's so beautiful, you can see why succeeding generations, and especially the ones coming up behind me, the millennials and Generation Z, have glommed onto tolerance as this beautiful idea and latched onto it as a core value, a virtue. And as Christians, um, especially, we should approve this because our scriptures do, as we're going to find out in just a second. But the idea evolved, okay? So that's the old idea, but the idea evolved. And we kind of have a new understanding, basically brought to us in the last 40 years or so, and you now see it defining interactions in our social media. And the new tolerance is different from the old tolerance in three main ways. It's the same in, in a lot of ways, but it's different in three main ways. One, intolerance is no longer the application of coercive force or what we call interference. That's not, in, that's not intolerance. In the new tolerance, merely disagreeing with someone equals intolerance okay that's the new way we're defining the term two the new tolerance makes tolerance a supreme virtue it makes it the highest good and that means it's a good that's put above the good of seeking truth so true seeking now gets subordinated to tolerance true seeking being right gets subordinated to being tolerant. In fact, the existence of many views, many views on God, many views on religion, many views on morality, is suggestive of people today that there is no true view of God or morality or religion. There's actually no true view to be found. And therefore, the only right thing to do is to accept all views, and that, in fact, is demanded as a moral duty. Okay? That's another way that it's different. Third way that it's different is the new tolerance then contains a seed of deep intolerance which is a deep irony that it never seems to be aware of so the new tolerance has a profound intolerance of intolerance and so becomes the thing that it hates so if you want a picture of this if you're i just want you to make sure you're tracking with me on this if you want a picture of this dichotomy where tolerance can turn intolerant we have to go to the profound wisdom of Hollywood. And we're going to see a clip now from the Lego movie, Let's Watch. Okay, so that is so important. We're just going to spend a minute exegeting that clip that we just saw, right? So rarely has, has Hollywood ever seen itself so clearly. Notice, they're in cloud cuckoo land. What else do you call a place that has, admittedly, no logical consistency, right? It's just cuckoo. No negativity, she says, Unikitty says, except for the negativity which we endorse, 
right? That's cuckoo. And, and, then, and that's because, why? That's because in cloud cuckoo land, truth and hard bumpers of right and wrong. Remember, Emmett says, where, where are the rules? Where's the signs? How do you know what's right? How do you know what's wrong? How do you know where to go? That's all taken a back seat to the most important value. And what's that? The value of having no values. We have no government. We have no bushy mustaches, right? All that kind of stuff. We have no bedtimes, no rules, no frowny faces, no negativity of any kind. Wait, you just said no like a thousand times. That's so perceptive. What happens then when someone shows negativity in cloud cuckoo land? Well, Unikitty just, just about blows a gasket. That's what happens, right? Roar! She, she roars into the screen. The queen of anything goes land. The land of tolerance becomes angrily intolerant. And now you get it. See, that's the poison pill inside the new tolerance. And I hope that you see, friends, that there is a deep connection between your view of truth and your view of tolerance. There intimately connected the old tolerance said we all know the truth is out there so it doesn't matter you're christian catholic protestant you know buddhist nazi in the old way of looking at this everybody sort of agreed to the objective nature of truth we all know the truth is out there but if we disagree on it it does me no good to coerce you to see it so i'll endure what i think are your false views without interference except when you invite open, respectful debate. The new tolerance says there's no truth to be found. There's no truth out there. So we should tolerate all views as equally true unless you say there is truth and that justifies being intolerant of you. And so the old tolerance was a social tolerance that embraced the idea of truth. Let's get along as we try to struggle to find out what's true, what's true about God, let's, what's true about, about morals, let's, what's true about re- religion. Let's just kind of get along as we wrestle through that stuff because it's out there to be found. The new tolerance is uncritical tolerance that rejects the very idea of truth. And it says, let's agree that there are no wrong answers except the intolerable sin of saying there are wrong answers. That's just wrong. And now you understand cloud cuckoo land, and you live in it. So Christian, we cannot go along with the new tolerance. Not as it's newly being defined, right? Why? Well, because we follow the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we have to believe in the objective nature of truth, that there is a real ground for reality, and that grounding is in God. God, the ultimate grounding of reality, all moral reality that is objective and real and outside of our own perceptions. We just believe that. It's baked into the cake of Christianity. And so we can't go along with a a view that undermines the objective nature of truth, even if we understand humbly that we don't see all truth, as Paul will say. Now we see in a glass darkly, then face to face. Now we know in part. So because it asks us to suspend our judgment about truth claims and moral claims and even scientific claims increasingly. It's fascinating. I watched an interview this week. It was was fascinating. It was done on the campus of University of Washington. And there's a man on the street interview and he's interviewing all these college students. You know, they're 18 to 20 years old. And the interviewer is a five foot nine inch white guy. And he asked the students a series of very simple questions. And finally he asked them uh, what they would say to him He just asked for a simple response. What would you say to me if I tell you that I am a six foot five inch Chinese woman? 
And all the students in the interview, at least, I don't know how many they pulled to get these answers, but there was at least a half dozen. All the students said, totally cool, nice to meet you, how you doing, great to see you, all that stuff. And what was fascinating is they, they, they graduated the questions, you know, so what would you say if I said I was Chinese? Guys, totally Caucasian. They'd say, oh, hi, great. What would you say if I said I was a Chinese woman? They'd you could tell they flinched just a little bit. That's great, awesome, good to meet you. What if I said I was a six foot five inch Chinese woman? And that's when their cognitive dissonance just rose to the level. Nice to meet you, great. I mean, you could, they, they, they were coached so well and this is what we have to do. This is what the new tolerance was telling them was orthodoxy. This is how it needed to be because there are no truth claims that are objective and real. The post-truth nature of the new uncritical tolerance is sub-Christian even if it does sound Christian in many ways. We need to not judge people, and Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge. Uh, we have a whole sermon to write on that and what exactly that means, but he also says, and Paul will say, accept one another, yes. But Jesus wanted his followers to seek the truth, to believe that it was out there to be found, that they have a concern for objective moral values. In other words, to believe that some things are really right because they conform to the eternal, unchanging nature of God and some things that do not conform to that are really and objectively wrong. He wanted his followers to have an honest confrontation of wrong, to be willing to suffer consequences for standing for the right, to engage with sound reasoning, to be courageous truth-tellers, all that stuff. And truth then is not fundamentally what the new tolerance wants example of that i saw on my facebook feed this is a while back but i remember seeing this meme this friendship meme on my facebook feed the uh, a while back and it said my best friends understand me and unconditionally love and support me and when i read it my first thought was oh that's cool you know grace and i want my friends to be gracious with me and then i thought a little bit deeper and I thought, wait, there's some new tolerance just sort of bleeding in here, I think. Because I, I said to myself, wait, is this what I want from my closest friends? To have them unconditionally support all of my decisions and actions. Is that what I really want from my best friends? Someone once said, if what I want is unconditional support for all my decisions, I don't want a friend, I want a trip through the McDonald's drive-thru. Because I guarantee you, when you go through the drive-thru, they will unconditionally support all your decisions. I want 13 Big Macs, and I'm going to eat them all today and supersize it all. Sir, I unconditionally support your, your decisions, all your decisions. That'll be $56, please. They will unconditionally support all your decisions at a drive-thru. I don't think you want that from your best friends. I just don't think you want it. Do I want that in a real friend? Some people, you notice they withdraw from friendships where you know that they're going to get pushback as those people will help clarify their narrative. Help them to objectively see that where their perception may be off of what's true. And we'll kind of isolate from the people that want to tell me the truth and I'll buddy up the people who will 100% affirm my narrative. And friends, it's not, it's not healthy. It's not healthy. So relativism is in the air like invisible radiation, and it says there's no truth except for your perception. Your perception is actually 100% of the definition of what's true. So if that is true, then obviously anyone who disagrees with your perception is an intolerant jerk. And any serious reflection on actions that contain the words right or wrong or true or false is immediately denounced or assumed to be bigoted, narrow, and here's a word, intolerant. Now, Christian, I don't have to tell you who this puts in the crosshairs, right? 
This puts you in the crosshairs. If you are an absolutist, right? Like if at a, at a fundamental level, you believe that there is an objective ground for reality, both religious and moral reality, an objective ground outside of what you perceive in your head, that you believe that it's out there. You don't perceive it correctly 100%, but you believe, if you just believe that, you are in the crosshairs of the new tolerance. And watch out, because that does mean that if you expose your belief in objective moral values, that you will be, people are going to jump on you. Uh, you're free game for, uh, the into, uh, to, to be called intolerant from society, from the citizens of Facebook, from the Denzians of the Twitterverse. So, what should we do? What should we do, AC3? Maybe we just strike back in kind, you know? Let's just hit back. Fight fire with fire. Fight intolerance with intolerance. Because that seems to be the way of it these days. Well, no, friends. Let us instead go back to the good ones of old who figured this tolerance thing out from Scripture. That's where they figured it out. They figured out the tolerance thing from Scripture, if you can believe it. And where Christians were intolerant in church history, it was when they denied everything I'm going to read to you now. Are you ready? Because I'm just going to fall like hammer blows. Listen to this. Remember, um, we said, we Christians are not into coercion. Friends, that comes from our scripture. Coercion is not our bag baby. And if it's true that increasingly, not all, but increasingly fascists and secularists and many kinds of non-Christians will increasingly be into coercion, that better not be us because coercion is not our bag baby. And I'll prove it to you. Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. The apostle Peter says, but set apart the Messiah as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect. Question, how does Christianity spread? Does it spread by the imposition of Christian ideas through the tools and the machinations of government? Does it spread by us pushing our message down people's throats? Does it spread by interfering as we defined intolerance earlier no christianity spreads when christians are asked about their unique hope in christ and then they are to be ready in those opportunities to give a defense for the hope that they have within them using reason using evidence and you can understand that underneath that is a belief that truth exists and it can be found it can be discovered if we just seek and so um what's the footnote Yes, let's figure this one out. Let's reason. Let's give reasons for the hope that we have and do this with, say it with me, with gentleness and respect. You guys don't believe it apparently. So let's do this together, shall we? We're going to do this with gentleness and respect. That's how. That's how we do this. Respecting the truth claims of others even if we're convinced that they're in error. Respect means engaging their ideas. Respect means giving reasons for their hard questions. Respect means responding with understanding to doubt instead of with shame. Respect means responding with gentleness when we disagree. Respect means being non-coercive. In a word, respect means tolerance. Tolerance. Paul will say it again. Let's just keep going. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. 
Now that word attractive is a free translation of the original Greek which is literally seasoned with salt. So your conversation, the Apostle Paul says, should be seasoned with salt. Well, what does salt do? Salt makes food taste good. And so he's saying make sure your conversation tastes good. That it draws people to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and not repels them. And that's why it's freely translated there. Make sure your conversation is attractive, seasoned with salt. Are you feeling coercion in this, men and women? Are you feeling force or intolerance in this? No. And so we present the truth about Jesus in a way that is uncompromising and yet attractive. Are you doing that? If you follow Jesus here this morning, I'm just asking you the hard question. Are you doing that? Because that's part of how you go. When we talk about being a fully devoted follower of Jesus, look over here to my right, your left. We say it just means a mature uh, application of loving God and loving the church and loving the world. And part of loving the world means you go. And going, part of going is just understanding the winsome nature of the sort of salty conversation that Christians should have. And when I say salty, I don't mean swearing, okay? You got that? I mean the Apostle Paul definition of salty, not the sailor definition of salty. Are you with me? Okay, so let us have salty conversation as part of going. It's a part of establishing the context of how we are engaging in the world. In applications, we talk all about it, and I encourage you, friend, let's all take in that material together so that we can be fully devoted followers. And it has a whole section on going that is life-changing. Here's another passage. Let's just keep going. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul will again say, Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business, and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not Christians will respect the way you live, and you will not need to depend on others. Now, friends, if you first pass on that particular passage and you're going to say, well, wait a minute, this passage, first part of the sentence, last part of it, is God telling his people to work hard and reject dependency, and the answer to that is yes, that is absolutely an upshot of this passage. In other words, if there's a trajectory to your Christian life that is expanding your dependency on the government and everybody else, that's not a Christian trajectory. The Christian trajectory, and we're all on this spectrum somewhere, is towards greater self-reliance and independence, okay, as Paul will define it here. But why? Why? For whose sake? Look at the middle portion of the passage. For the sake of the outsider, the person who doesn't go to church, the person who's not a follower of Jesus, he's thinking about the impact that self-reliant, hardworking, non-busybody, non-interfering, another word, tolerant Christians will have on their non-Christian neighbors. That's what he's thinking about. And if the definition of intolerance is using coercive force to interfere with people who disagree with you, well, this is the opposite of that. Quiet life? What part of a quiet life is coercive? What part of a quiet life is interfering? This is what real tolerance looks like, AC3. We're not busybodies. We're not lazy. We're not loud and coercive with outsiders. And friends, I know that this, they're, they're, you're going to struggle with this. If you want to apply the Apostle Paul, guess who you're going to have to struggle with? Church people. A lot of times you're going to have to struggle with church people, and especially online. If you're like me, you're going to receive almost weekly some sort of meme that you will be encouraged 
to pass on. It will be a Christian meme. It will say something important about Jesus. It will say something about the gospel. And it will always come loaded with coercion. It will come loaded with manipulation. It will say something like, if you don't repost this, you don't love Jesus. Something like that. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. And he, and he knows you just read it, so you can't pretend you didn't see it. You know, like just loaded with guilt and coercion. I'm a pastor. I want people to come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And I never pass that stuff on. Why? Because it's coercive. And we don't do coercion. That's not our bag, baby. This is our bag. This is what we do. I could go on and on. When Paul is telling Timothy he needs to teach his church the truth, capital T, truth, the truth claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, how is a young pastor supposed to do that? Does he say, hey man, you got the truth, now power up and let him have it with both guns. Go, 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 go. Is that what he says? Here's what he says. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. Again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone. He is able to teach and be patient with difficult people. I don't think I've met anybody like that online, but I mean, if you, hypothetically, <laughs> hypothetically, if that ever happened, that you met a difficult person, here's something. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Questions, right? Remember when messages were so simple, they just ended with questions, right? Like, this is, you know, Drugs, this is your brain on drugs. Questions, you know, something like that. Well, you know, it's interesting. You, we've all, you know, had web pages that you go to and before they load, there's some sort of disclaimer or some sort of, you know, permission form that you have to click on before you can proceed into the website, right? We've all had that before. Well, I'd like it if before our social interactions, we would immediately have a pop-up that would say something like, before proceeding, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. This is the word of God. Proceed. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. And then we could have to go, right? And then, you know, you know that that stuff's just, you know, not worth the paper it's printed on if it was printed on paper. But, but you know, like, are you 18 or older, right? You know, these are just totally on the honor system. But it would cause everybody to pause, wouldn't it? To say, wait a minute. Am I going to be involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights? If so, this will be in direct contradiction to the marching orders of my scripture. So because we reject uncritical tolerance, this is saying, Christian, look, you believe in truth. So give your answers with gentleness and respect. Engage your seeking friend in debate as invited in. Teach, start conversations, tell the truth. Don't start fights. Second, if someone opposes you, do what? Flame them out, gossip, unfriend, pick at their place of business. I'm reading something different. If they oppose you, gently instruct. I'm just going to leave that there. That's what people say on their Facebook, right? I'm just going to leave this right there. Just leave that. Oh, we keep going, friends. I've got a few more minutes. Look, later Paul will say to another young pastor, Titus, if someone continues to be divisive in a local church, here's what you're supposed to do. And then what do you think comes next? When he says to Titus, you know, if someone gets divisive in your local church, here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to like impose a tax on them, raise their tithe limit, uh, try to get them arrested or kill them if that doesn't work. I mean, what, what, are, the, what are the tools in Titus's toolkit? 
that Paul will say to him, what is he supposed to do? No, he says, Titus 3, verse 10, if divisiveness continues, warn repeatedly, then withdraw. Warn repeatedly, that's grace. Then withdraw. That's truth. It's simple, and friends, it's respectful. It's respectful. You say, how is that respectful? I don't know about that. I mean, I'm engaged in a relationship with someone who knows so, no sign of accepting my admonishment, and I withdraw from them. Isn't that unkind? Doesn't love say I should stay engaged indefinitely? No. 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 Staying indefinitely is a form of coercion. Staying indefinitely is like, I'll wear them down. Staying indefinitely is a form of control. Altering the relationship based on a demonstrated lack of receptivity actually is more loving. Why? Because it honors that person's freedom. They are made in the image of God. You have not locked eyes with someone who isn't of immense and enormous value. And if they say to you, affirm and clear, no, then respect and love says, withdraw. You say, I know, Rick, I don't think that's gospel. Well, let's listen to the master, shall we? Matthew chapter 10, verse 14. If anyone, just Jesus, instructing his disciples as they go about teaching the message of the kingdom. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Shaking the dust off your feet. You know, that's a, obviously a cultural idiom. We don't do that anymore. Uh, but much more so, we could say something like wash your hands. And that would be kind of the same thing because it's not, you feel like, well, this, Jesus, you're calling us to be contemptuous of people who reject our message. No, no, not contemptuous, not at all. What he's saying is, I wash my hands of it, I've done all I can. And I humbly acknowledge that the limits of my influence have been reached. And I respect you enough to give you the freedom to decide what you're going to decide. Friend, that's grace and respect abiding by someone else's choice even if you disagree with it. And Jesus here in these words is rejecting compulsion forever, which is so ironic when you think about how many times the church has engaged in compulsive behavior, in, com in coercive, coercive behavior. Jesus is saying, you believe what you wanna believe. True tolerance says, I get to choose, and I choose to tell you the truth about Jesus Christ. Now you get to choose, and you can say, I don't accept your truth about Jesus Christ, and then I get to choose what I do with your choice. And my choice is sometimes, Jesus says, what I choose is to leave you alone. And that's respectful. And it's you committing to live a quiet life a respectful life, a life that an outsider would look in and say, I like that. It's, an, it's not a life that someone's hair is on fire all the time. They seem to be calm and they're at peace with God and everybody else and they live at peace with everyone as much as it is up to them. They seem to be at peace with everybody. It's, it's an attractive life. So Christian, I got two things to say to you in closing and one is that if you're gonna be a person who believes in the objective foundation for truth, an objective foundation for religion, which is in God, an objective foundation for morals. There's some things that are really wrong and really right, and that's founded in the internal character of God. If you believe that, just gird up the loins of your mind, to use a first century phrase. Get ready, in other words. You're going to be opposed. You're going to be called intolerant. And it won't matter at times how gentle or respectful you are. I'm serious. You will be called a bigot and intolerant. You will. Because as I said, the new tolerance 
is intolerant in many ways. So just expect it. Just expect it. Now, how will you respond? You respond by continuing in gentleness and respect. That's how you'll respond. You will not respond in kind. You will respond with intolerance. You will respond to intolerance with tolerance. And at the end of the day, friends, I say this because I believe it is the teaching of Master Jesus. At the end of the day, on Judgment Day, you will be responsible for only one soul, and that's your own. You will answer for yourself and not that person who's flamed you out, unfriended you, doesn't like what you have to say. Let's pray. Father, only let our gentleness be evident to all. And in this way, let us make the teaching about Jesus attractive. And in this way, Lord, we pray to be a spectacle, an oasis of sanity, of peacefulness, of restored relationship, of conflict resolution in an insane world that increasingly is divided and polarized and split down the middle. God, help us to be unified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.